Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Amos chapter 6? Amos chapter 6, verse 1 through 8 is where we'll be in God's Word together this morning. Uh, and as Zachary mentioned, I'm Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. I'm really uh, thankful to be worshiping the Lord with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we've been in a sermon series uh, in the book of Amos. The Old Testament prophets sent to proclaim God's oracles, God's word, uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, we're going through this book in the season of Lent, uh, a time in which we intentionally pause to reflect on our lives as human beings uh, in this world. We are limited, we are sinful. We are in need of God's grace to sustain us. And so we live in a world full of beauty and brokenness, and Lent is a time where uh, we turn honestly and vulnerably to look at the implications of that. We do this as a church because we believe that you can never really appreciate the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you don't really see your need for them. Without an understanding of sin and brokenness, the resurrection is maybe a nice gesture, or very noble, uh, but we won't really appreciate its necessity and glory for our lives. And so Lent is an opportunity to come together and to get acquainted with our need, our aching, our longing for restoration in this life. The book of Amos is helping us consider that that need and longing. The prophet Amos was sent to preach to a people that lost sight of their neediness. They became convinced that glory and meaning and goodness originated within them. And so they became blind to their need for restoration and redemption. And the prophet Amos came to call them out, to open their eyes to their foolishness. And I believe the prophet can help us to better see our need as well. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read from the book of Amos, chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see. And from there go to Hamath the great and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, 
They shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord God, what a great privilege it is to know you, to serve you. I thank you that you, you give us lives and you want to consume us by your fire for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the most significant events to shape American history was the California gold rush. Sparked by discovery of gold nuggets in the Sacramento Valley in 1848, This moment in history marked a moment of advancement for America in the world's eyes. People migrated from all over the then 31 states and at least 25 countries to get a hold of this newly discovered wealth. The population of California exploded from about 1,000 non-Native Americans to about 100,000 in less than two years. Gold fever had swept the land, leading to profound injustice toward indigenous and Mexican people. By the end of the California gold rush, over $80 million worth of gold was extracted from the land. And as miners and merchants were building their fortunes, there was another mineral that was causing problems for them. In all the abundance of gold, there was even more of an abundance of iron pyrite. The thing about pyrite is that it looks quite similar to gold. And because of the inexperience of these gold feverish miners, they they often extracted pyrite and thought it was gold. And they would try to cash it in and be disappointed to find out that it wasn't really gold and it wasn't really worth anything. Pyrite would eventually be referred to as fool's gold. Because even though it looked like gold, even though it would shine sometimes even brighter than gold, it wasn't worth anything. It was fool's gold because they would spend so much time, so much effort to invest their lives into something that didn't have much substance to it. We're doing a sermon series on true religion. And what we see throughout the book of Amos is the prophet calling out false religion over and over again. 
He goes to the northern kingdom of Israel and essentially proclaims to them, your religion does not have substance to it. It's fool's gold in the eyes of the Lord your God. And he spends chapter after chapter, sermon after sermon, calling them to return to the Lord, to seek the Lord and find life, but they refuse. Like with all the prophets, the people did not have ears to hear. They were committed to their self-oriented lives. In chapter 6, Amos turns his attention to the rich and powerful, to those who were considered elite first among the peoples. And the prophet says, woe. Only three times in the book of Amos do we see a pronouncement of woes. Two of them are in this chapter. This is a deep, visceral sense of sorrow and anger. It's the crying out from a soul ache that comes from profound betrayal. Amos wails, woe to you. He's outraged. You are so comfortable. You are at ease. You feel secure in being self-oriented and self-centered. The issue with Israel was not fundamentally an issue of wealth and power. The, the issue with Israel was that wealth and power became the basis of their security. Even to the point of oppressing other people and abandoning God to keep it. I mean, God had given them this wealth and power. He, he had given them victory. We see it when we look at the reign of King David and King Solomon. The people had experienced unprecedented success. If you were with us in the last sermon series, you know that the Lord kept promising this to these people. I will give you a land. I'll give you a people. I'll give you a kingdom. He promised this for generations and it came to pass. The Lord made them a prominent nation in the world. But something happened. Much like what happens with us, people became too confident in what they had. They became arrogant in their position. God gave them success and power, but he wanted his people to find their security in him above anything else as the source of success and power. But as the songwriter says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. These people wandered. And they looked to Samaria, the capital, as the symbol of prominence and security. They didn't think they needed God. And as Dr. Strawn pointed out last week in chapter 5, they, they were okay with, with offerings and sacrifices. They were okay with rituals and routines. They were okay with having church as long as they didn't have to obey God. And their conceptions of righteousness and justice became self-centered. And the elites, the first of the nations, were the worst among them, using their position in society to keep themselves at the utmost priority. And Amos comes to call them to account. You're being foolish. In verse 2, he points to various nations that were presumably noteworthy and powerful. 
Kalna and Hamath and Gath. He, he lifts them up as an object lesson. These were powerful nations and they fell. Do you really think you're better? Amos does this because he knows that self-righteousness is at its core comparative righteousness. Do you want to know how much you struggle with self-righteousness? Just take note of how you compare yourself to others, especially when you think you're better than them. Because Israel believed that the reason why they were so powerful and successful was because they were so awesome. They, they had trophies to prove it. They, they had degrees to prove it. They had stocks and savings accounts to prove it. They had families and, and jobs. They had lavish lives to prove it. Look how awesome we are. Surely we have done everything right. Surely we are doing everything right. And Amos is calling them out. If we're honest, some of us know what it's like to be impressed with ourselves. We, we are notable. We're notable because of our achievements. We're notable because of our resumes. We're notable because of our activism. We're notable because of our abilities. And we feel secure because, if we're honest, it's because we're just that good. And if people would, would just fall in line with me, and think the way I think and, and live the way I live, they could be just as awesome and righteous as I am. Are you better than these kingdoms? What is the basis of your security? And, and let me ask you this. If God was removed from the equation of your life, would you really notice a difference? Because if not, it might be because you're basing the security of your life on something or someone else. What if I removed your money? What if we removed your family? What if we removed your job? You'd notice that. Would you notice an absence of God? Verse 3. Amos points to the irony of their efforts. Israel is so concerned about securing their lives. They're so concerned about keeping the day of disaster away. They wanted to make sure they could keep their lives going as it was, not realizing that they were simultaneously working against their desires. They wanted so badly to protect their position and their power, and they didn't understand that they were undercutting all of that. Just as one cuts roses to enjoy them, they didn't realize that they were killing the bouquet of their lives because they cut themselves off from the source of their lives. Amos says, woe to you. You're bringing the seed of violence near. We, we learn more about this this seed a little later, but before Amos explains it, he illustrates the, the moral and spiritual ruin that will eventually lead to their material and societal ruin in verses 4 through 6. Starting in verse 4, we, we see the third woe to Israel. Verse 4 through verse 6 points to this party that the people are living. They're not just having a party, they live in a party. 
And scholars debate the nature of this party, this, this festival. What's likely happening is a funeral festival that would happen, that would take place uh, when you would lo- lose loved ones. But it's gotten out of hand. It is a kegger on steroids. Somebody definitely has a guzzler helmet on in this party. Uh, people are sprawled out on couches, which is a posture of lax and laziness. They're, they're eating the livestock and the calves, which in this culture, there wasn't a lot of meat eating that happened because flocks and, and herds were used for, for labor and clothing and, and farming. Uh, it was extravagant to, to eat meat. And verse 4 says these people are snatching them from the stalls. They're eating the resources of the people. Verse 5, they're they're having karaoke and jam sessions. They're they're, they're loving their wine so much they don't they don't they'll need to use a chalice or a cup. No, I'll just take this bowl. And instead of anointing their loved ones that they've lost with oils, they're anointing themselves. This is chaos. This is consumerism. This is the self-centered life. If it feels good, it must be good. And Amos ends verse 6 by saying, you're not even grieved. It's supposed to be a funeral festival. You're not even grieved. All of what's happening should push you to grieve. But instead, you're just partying. You're anesthetizing yourself to the ruin that is all around you. Amos raises an engrossing issue. What should grief look like when you are tempted to be at ease with ruin? What is the proper posture towards ruin? Amos looks at the state of the world and then looks at God's people and says, you're not grieved by this? That word there for, for grieved in Hebrew is a word that could be translated as sick or, or weak. Amos is pointing out, it isn't sickening to you what's happening all around you. You would rather have ease than peace. That issue comes up a lot in the prophets where people assumed that they had peace, shalom, A wholeness, a holistic goodness because they didn't have ruin yet. And so they were carefree as they lived with evil and its corrosive effects. It reminds me of Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. He says this, if peace means a willingness to be exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated and segregated, I don't want peace. If peace means being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want peace. If peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. Peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. It is dangerous when God's people can party when there is ruin all around. Because it can lead to being at ease rather than being at peace. I know what that feels like. To to have an awareness of the depths of the world's ruin, but I'd rather numb myself and just turn on the game. 
That was Israel's struggle. I I sympathize with Israel because I know what it's like to, to use pleasurable experiences as a tool to avoid turning towards the pain. And I wonder if you can relate. If we would look around us, we would see ruin that is worth grieving. When urban renewal projects become code word for gentrification, when we live in a country that puts more funding in prison systems than school systems, when we pit the value of a woman's life against the value of an unborn child's life as if one matters more than the other, when we invest our time in recreational arguing so that we can feel a sense of accomplishment in defeating an opponent instead of actually caring for the hurting and the marginalized. And the list goes on. Do you see it? And I already know, somebody's all ready to send me an email to set me straight on these problems in the world. And you can certainly email me at pastordaniel at christcentralchurch.com. But before you do, can we just stop and grieve together? Can we grieve that these are actual people hurting and not just talking points to debate? Amos says, woe to us if we can't be grieved. And God's people too often settle for ease when we should be aiming for peace. And so we should grieve. That's why I'm thankful for for Laura Marty. So I'm thankful for the missions team because they they represent represent that whether or not you're going across the world or across the sea, across the city, across the street, across the room, regardless of where you are, should be on mission to see peace in this world. We get to verse 7 and 8 and we learn more about this seed of violence that is coming. We see the consequences for Israel. The revelry, the parting, the pleasure-mongering will come to an abrupt halt when the Lord delivers them into exile. In fact, verse 7 says that the ones that partied the hardest will be the first to go. Amos is prophesying the coming captivity from the nation of Assyria. Assyria will come and remove them from the land, and it will be the Lord's doing. He swears by himself. It will surely happen, and it does. The Lord's anger is kindled against Israel. And I want to remind us of what Dr. Strawn said in his sermon last week. I would highly recommend that you go back and listen if you haven't. He let us know that God's wrath is therapeutic. It's for healing for ours and the whole world. And that might be a different take than you are used to about the nature of the wrath of God. But that's true. God's wrath is on display in the face of sin sickness, and he wants to heal it. That sickness is named in verse 8. Do you see it? Pride. The people are subjugated by their pride. 
C.S. Lewis said this about pride. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The people of Israel were in an anti-God state of mind. When your security is built on self, the Bible calls that pride. And the Lord hates it. He abhors it, and he's grieved by it because it only leads to harm. Harm to self, others, and our relationship with God. And he is not indifferent about that. He refuses to share his glory. Now, now here's where we need to be careful. Because a, a problematic application of this text could be God's going to get you if you're greedy. God's going to get you if you're power hungry. And God's going to get you if you harm the marginalized. And maybe some of us would, would love that kind of sermon application. And, and make no mistake, the Lord hates injustice. And he will crush evil. And I mean, that, that is the beauty of God's wrath. He, he cares way more about the problems you see than you ever could. And it angers him. And the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Everything wrong will be made right. The wicked will cease from troubling and the weary will be at rest. The prophet Isaiah lets us know that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. The crooked places will be made straight and the rough places made smooth. Come, Lord Jesus, to hasten the day. But here's where we need to be careful. We, we need to be careful when we like the wrath of God when it's pointed away from us. You want the wrath of God on Congress? No problem. You want the wrath of God on human traffickers? Great. You want the wrath of God on, on this political group or that political group? Cool. You, you want the wrath of God on all the people that are clearly more wicked than you are? All right, fine. But what about you? H have you saved some wrath for you? Because that's what Amos is calling out in the text. Are you better than Kalna? Are you better than Hamath and Gath? When we feel good about our righteousness compared to others, we have fooled ourselves. Our righteousness is fool's gold when it makes us more deserving of God than the next person. So what do we do? If we believe what the Bible says, that no one is righteous, no, not one, what do we do? We deserve the wrath of God for our pride. And that is the dilemma 
that the season of Lent presents to us. We are guilty. We need a savior. We need the Lord in bringing restoration and justice. We need the Lord to bring true peace. We need the Lord to be enthroned in our lives that we will be dethroned. And when Jesus came, he made it so that we could have the right to be called the children of God and not the children of wrath. As the songwriter says, on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. And here in the death of Christ, we live. We live. We live. And so we come to Christ to see our need for life. We come to him to base our security on him. Because anything else is sinking sand. But do you see that? Do you see your need for this Savior? I believe that, it's, uh, that it might be universally true uh, that uh, children are terrible at looking for stuff. I don't know, maybe it's just my kids. Um, but I have a five-year-old daughter and she struggles to find everything. I mean, her shoes, her, her jacket, her clothes, her toothbrush. It's in the same spot every night. Where's your toothbrush? I don't know. <laughs> uh, and it might be genetic because I'm terrible at finding stuff too, so I'm, let me call myself out. Um, but there, there was one particular day that uh, my daughter was, was hungry and my wife told her to get the juice out of the refrigerator. So my daughter goes to the refrigerator and opens the fridge, and of course, she can't find it. I mean, it was instant. Boom, I can't find it. So my wife says, did you look? Right, well, like this, that's part of the routine. You know, did, did you actually look? Uh, and and my, my daughter, she replies back, and she's getting more and more frustrated that she can't find the juice. She says, I have eyes, Mommy, but I can't find it. And my wife wisely replies back, just because you have eyes, that doesn't mean you can see. Move the stuff around and look. Are you really looking? Something powerful in that for us. My daughter misunderstood what really seeing meant. And I can relate to that. And, and that's what the prophet Amos is holding out for us this morning. Do we have eyes to actually see this morning? Do we see this beautiful Savior that has come to bring light to the darkness? May it be so that we would behold the Lord our God and that he would be the basis of all our security. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? And so, Lord, we... We confess that we're too often self-focused. We're self-focused in our joys. We're self-focused in our sorrows. And you come to us again and again to behold you above all else. 
Because regardless of where we are in our condition, you have been good to us. And you want us to be enlivened by your life. You've taken our sin. You've taken our death that we might live. Would you help us to really see that? Today and always we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.